0: following podcast is brought to you by Open G Records. I'm Chris Grimes and I'm the founder of Open G Records and on this podcast I'm going to be talking with Stephen Stuckey. Steve won the 2005 Pulitzer Prize for Music Composition and currently teaches here in New York City at Juilliard. Uh, I'm really proud to be presenting two New York premieres of his works on October 26th and 27th. That's this coming up Monday and Tuesday at 7 p.m. at National Sawdust. Uh, the Sonata for Violin and Piano, and then the Sonata for Solo Piano on Monday and Tuesday, respectively. Um, I was really excited to talk with Steve about being a composer and being uh, an overall artist, and uh, that's what happens on this podcast. And I also make as many mistakes as possible while being a broadcaster. That is to say, I left one of my fans on, and then uh, I was also trying to live stream this over the PlayStation Network, which worked out really well until the internet showed up. And then when the internet showed up, all hell broke loose. I had to kind of manage that for a bit. And then also my phone rang. So go me. And I just left most of that in there uh, because why not? Um, also, we talk about a piece uh, throughout the uh, podcast called Schubert Dream, Uh This is a piece that Steve wrote for Piano Four Hands that was recorded for my label, Open G Records, by Zach Björken and Miriam Polsky. And uh, I thought I'd give you about a minute or so of that work right here, and then we'll go straight into the interview. So this is Steve Stuckey, Schubert Dream, and then podcast. So you can, uh, this is a nice microphone, you don't have to like crowd it too okay. much if you don't okay. like. Okay. Uh, so I'm here with... I'd st- like to have the studio. Yeah, right? It's nice. Yeah. It's, it's very like nice. I uh, good practice chi. Yeah. Normally I like to have a glass of scotch for you, but I know you have work. Yes. <laughs> and Other engagements maybe... Normally
1: I like to have a glass of scotch as well. At a different time. Let Perhaps me, later, yeah.
0: Uh, let me make a brief introduction. This is my guest, uh, Steve Stuckey. Uh, Winner of the 2005 Pulitzer Prize. Uh, is taught at Cornell, UC Berkeley, the the Aspen School, uh, now Juilliard. Uh, Really, uh, I have to say, you know, I was well familiar with your work, but as I did research for this podcast, I was just like blown away by your resume. It's really, congratulations (laughs) on the career that you've had. It's really... Well, thank you. It's unbelievable. I want to start... I um, always feel
1: tired when I hear people start reciting these things. (laughs) I did all of that. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, I know. No wonder my back hurts.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Let's, um, I'm always fascinated by how people grow up, and as I was reading about you, I noticed uh, you grew up originally in Kansas, and then moved to... Texas, I believe, when you were early. So, what do, what were your early exposures to music in Kansas? I
1: uh, I grew up among farmers, uh, and not um, in a classical music area of, of the country. Uh, but my maternal grandfather played the violin, and he had played in, I think, theater orchestras, vaudeville orchestras in Kansas City. You know. Mm-hmm. In the, late 19th century, early 20th century. We have a, Like
0: original Kansas City, Kansas City.
1: Yeah, we have a picture of him from, I think, 1915, you know, in, wearing white tie and with his fiddle tucked under his <laughs> arm, looking very handsome. Um, and I don't have actual memories of hearing him play, but I remember that picture, and so, I can only think that I must have gotten some interest from my grandmother and grandfather.
0: So it's sort of a... Th- Family mythology, kind of. Exposure. Yeah,
1: you know, it's uh, it's one of these memories that you construct from having been told about it or from seeing pictures. Um, but I was li- I I started listening to records mm-hmm. as as early as I could. How um, early
0: are you thinking? Well, I
1: I think it's probably two or three years old. You know.
0: What kind of records did you have? My mother house?
1: had one of those phonographs that was in a box, and you would open the lid, you know, yeah, yeah. and. Turntable would be in there and the speakers were built into the sides.
0: Yeah, it's like an original portable kind of uh setup, yeah. yeah.
1: And she had uh, to my in, in my memory she had two albums it was when a symphony would take up three or four platters, right? Right, right. <laughs> and, uh they, with
0: seventy eights or seventy eight, yeah, yeah. And
1: she had the New World Symphony, probably Leopold Stokowski, uh-huh. and uh Peter and the Wolf, maybe also Stokowski. Uh-huh. And um, I just used
0: to listen to this and and, and think, I'd, I'd like to do that. Were those the only two records? That... Those are
1: the only two I can remember in her collection. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's funny. I, a similar, I did an interview with another composer named David Glazer mm-hmm. and he... He only had two records around the same time in his house, and they were the Rite of Spring and Ina Klandenacht music. And so, somehow those two things also, like, you see. Pretty...
1: I didn't run into the Rite of Spring till I was, you know, in double digits.
0: Right, me too. <laughs> me too. I, I, we come from a somewhat similar background, actually, which is why I, I'm definitely interested in hearing this part. So neither of your parents were musicians?
1: No, no. Um, except for my grandfather, who had really put his violin away by the time I knew him. you right. know. Um, no, it was just a kind of
0: fluke. Did you, so you completely self-motivated yeah. into that.
1: But school music, you know, um, like. especially I moved to Texas when I was nine. Mm-hmm. And in those days, Texas had very good school music programs. They still do. Paid for by oil.
0: Right. They still uh, do. I think. Yeah. <laughs>
1: um, and I was, I got a lot of encouragement from school teachers. What
0: were you, were you playing at that point?
1: I played, eventually I played the viola. I wanted to play a string instrument, and um, you had to rent the violins and cellos, but the violas were free. <laughs> there's there's a viola joke in there yeah, somewhere. Yeah, no, just a metaphor. I really they, don't know what it is. They couldn't give it away, you know. So, uh, <laughs> uh, And I played viola for quite a long time through college. Um, I eventually gave it up. I wasn't Practicing, and nobody wants to sit by you if you can't play in tune. You right. know so you <laughs> I've been there. Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, um, so you're in public schools. At what point do you find that this is really what you want to do as a course of your life? Pretty early.
1: I, I, I don't recall ever having a, another ambition, a career ambition, than, uh, than, than writing music. Um, I had no clear idea how one would make a living at that I still don't I mean in a certain way you know yeah um it's a it's a precarious thing to do but I I feel very very lucky that um the only thing I ever wanted to do is what I ended up doing and that I'm getting paid for it
0: was there at all when you were young like a real like a seminal piece or a seminal performance that really was like that blows my mind
1: There's there's not one single you know road to Damascus Right. uh, for me but I would I spent uh I spent my Saturdays at the public library and I went through the entire record collection I'm sure whatever it was you know and so I was listening to Shostakovich symphonies and Aaron Copeland and you know Sam Barber at what age oh eight nine ten you know all as as soon as I could really right
0: you were just personally interested in Absorbing that music, or like listening to everything that you—everything I
1: could, everything I could. I wanted to be those guys, you know.
0: Like some kids might want to be Derek Jeter, or right, right. <laughs> I see.
1: I never wanted to be a fireman for some reason. <laughs> I wanted to <laughs> be a composer, <laughs> right?
0: Uh, so when when did you start producing compositions? I started own?
1: making scores before I could read music. Just just making gibberish, you know, musical notation.
0: How how would you do that do you recall like, well you know
1: five lines and
0: some sharps and flats i mean it, 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 so you would copy that far you would you make up your own notation just no
1: no no but but imitation music uh some people think that's what i'm still doing you know <laughs> <laughs> well let's not get into but, the qualitative uh, side of but it. no i uh really before i could before i could read music and then as soon as i could read music which was was pretty easy once you once they explained it to right. me you know um, it's somewhat
0: intuitive. Most I was, go up yeah, I, I was writing
1: real pieces. Uh, that is, real imitations of real pieces. For what kind of? You know, uh, I wrote an opera on the Pickwick Papers. I remember when yeah. I was about twelve. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I got past the first scene. Yeah,
0: but still, that's like insane. For like, for not for a 20th century kid. You know, it's not like we have Mozart's running around that aren't right. maybe writing dance music. Well, I'm
1: not saying that. it was good. <laughs> um, and i'm I'm not being self-deprecating now, but i I was a child prodigy who who was a late bloomer, right. That means I wrote music early, but I didn't get a handle on it until late.
0: And what would you consider to be late?
1: I think the first time I really came into my own with, with anything worth that I would that I would want to listen to again, yeah. I was in my thirties, probably. Hmm. I was out of school.
0: You know, there's like, I think, a a philosophy in a lot of Scandinavian countries that you're not really outside of your uh, adolescence until you're early to mid-30s. Well... Uh, I kind of... I feel a little similarly, but um, that's interesting. I
1: mean, there's the, you know, there's the 10,000-hour thing. I think I put in 30,000, 40,000 hours before I became getting good, you know. Right, right. You do have to put in the time.
0: Yeah, the, the time plus the talent is like, you know, I was watching a movie... Jiro Dreams of Sushi, which is a, mm-hmm. a really great and and at a certain point you can work and work and get very, very good, but at a certain point you also have to have talent. And you have to have talent and you also have to work really, really hard. Yeah, it's,
1: talent without work doesn't actually produce anything at all. Yeah. No, for sure. Yeah.
0: In fact, it might produce the most frustrating things <laughs> on the planet. So, um let's talk a little bit about your process of, of how you write. Um yeah. do you write every day i wish
1: ideally yes
0: yeah do you write on a schedule do you schedule time for yourself ideally yes
1: ideally i would write every day in the morning i'm a my brain is better in the morning
0: oh somebody sent that to you oh that's nice thank all you all right thank you Best thing.
1: um in in actuality i don't have control of my schedule you know right. because You're i'm still teaching quite busy doing other things traveling um my mentor was the Polish composer Lutosłasky. Somebody once asked him, "Do you compose every day?" And he said, "Everyday I think like a composer. Mm-hmm. So on the days when you can't sit down and do it, it um, doesn't mean your mind isn't shouldn't be working on the problem right And so I try to think about the piece in, that's in progress every day. Do you uh, ever
0: make notes to yourself
1: um, sure
0: you make notes to yourself like a uh, you know how some people might if they have a dream or something they wake up from Yeah. Uh, you know You. Yeah. you so tomorrow I, I have this idea I want to flesh this I out I do
1: I do but more often if, if uh, and I think this is true of many creative artists if you come to an impasse if you just walk away from it and don't think about it some unconscious part of your brain is still working on the problem and you can probably solve it the next morning
0: do you think that like as you sleep is, is it necessarily like because for me i think that your brain works on problems that you don't recognize while you're asleep is it always the yeah. next day or do you does it maybe pop up later the, in the oh evening?
1: It, it, it might be later but oh, yeah. but but um the thing is to work every day or at least to think about working every day so that the machinery never goes cold that way your mind can keep working on on it while you're at dinner or you know sleeping or whatever yeah if if you let the if you let the whole factory shut down then it then starting it up is is a slow process
0: i see uh i've talked with several composers on 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 this series and it's really interesting how some some composers like joan tower will just start writing and like it's a like a novel, like the characters take themselves where it goes. Yeah. And then other composers have a very strict sort of structure that they have to have in mind before they even start to put pen to paper. Where do you sort of fall in that In
1: spectrum? the middle. I'm I'm very concerned about structure, and I would like to know as much about the structure beforehand as possible. But I've found, and getting older I find it more and more, that I can't always know. Sometimes... I'm, I'm waiting to figure out what I want to do and I just time is running out and I just have to start
0: mm-hmm. for like a commission or something
1: yeah like that. Um, I'm, almost everything I write has a deadline right everything has a deadline really and sometimes I just have to plunge in and okay. then like Joan um, find out who the characters are let them start interacting um, let the piece eventually start telling me things
0: about itself have you ever had a piece that turned out completely differently at the end than you thought, than you even conceived of at the beginning?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean that that can be exciting if it works. I have I've had a few pieces recently where I didn't know what the ending was going to be until maybe halfway in.
0: I imagine there, it takes a little bit of humility like to sort of It takes a lot of, it dull. takes a lot of
1: humility to do this anyway, you know. Well, <laughs> uh, yeah. Because uh, you know, here we are attempting to join the same guild you know that that Brahms and Palestrina belong to yeah you know it takes a lot of humility
0: right but yeah well and I would think uh I, I like that by the way it's a very I, I love to see seriously composed music in the same continuum as those old guys the craftsmanship for me on, on my horn I think about you know the, the, the player that Mozart wrote for, that Brahms wrote for, and, and that kind of craftsmanship in that line. Um, I imagine also not being able to control the outcome of your performances is, is humbling from time to time. That is to say you have a, to put it in somebody else's hands that's to true. realize. It's, uh, uh, that's true. Um,
1: that is, if you'll you know, forgive me being a little harsh, I think that's a mistake that many young composers make that is wanting to control too exactly... Um, the interpretations of their own music, uh, that so, so that the perfect performance is exactly the way they played it at home.
0: Right, that there is a perfect performance. Yeah. out I, there.
1: I I I don't like that um, that philosophy at all. I like learning from the musicians things that I couldn't have thought of myself. Right, that's that could be one of the most rewarding parts of it.
0: It's one of the, in, sort of the... When ethereal- the piece is
1: alive, it continues to grow after it leaves, you know, the the, the nursery.
0: Yeah, you know, th- <clears throat> things achieve a performance practice almost of their own, even five, ten years down the road with um, with repeated playings, et cetera. Um, there was a point I was going to push on, but it, w- it will come back to me. Oh, if it comes to yeah. me, I'll, I'll just,
1: just a, a, one more gloss on that. I wrote a symphony a couple of years ago that was for... Los Angeles and New York. And it's now been played three times, so three different conductors. And the three performances are very different, and they're all good. Hmm. Uh, It's not that, uh, so uh, Dudamel, Alan Gilbert, and Hmm. Leonard Slatkin. And it's not that one is better than the other. It is that I'm delighted that I was able to make a piece that they wanted to put themselves into. Yeah. um, And that, you know, is sturdy enough to carry the emotional and artistic contribution of other people as well as mine
0: that has to be gratifying because that's the great thing about brahms or or to a lesser extent mozart but but of of some composers where there is no definitive like performance like you can get wildly different performances of even a single movement that work because the music can handle it it's got to feel good to at least actually the
1: um, the the, the piece uh, the the four hands panel piece that mm-hmm. that Zach Berkin and Mary Ampolsky recorded for you yes. for your label their performance is quite different from anybody else's it's 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 darker why uh, do you think in their in their reading of that piece which I like very much I think it's probably the best approach but but it's something that I didn't know I was putting in uh, there is this sort of Foreboding Schubert death year, you mm-hmm. know, atmosphere eighteen twenty eight atmosphere I, you know, that is stronger than I meant for it to be, and I think more powerful than I could have imagined. Hmm. And they did that.
0: We were going to get into that piece. Okay, later. sorry. No, much, no, no. Let's let's skip ahead, and, yeah. and since we're talking about it, let's talk about it. Um, that's really interesting because I, I talked to him right before you came, and I and I said, listen, are there, are there any cool questions that I couldn't find? doing regular research and and he wanted to talk he wanted me to talk about the dream aspect in fact the subtitle of or in the title of your work it says schubert dream um can you just uh, why would you choose to go into a dream state with schubert i do know this answer a little bit but yeah i'm
1: not even sure i know the answer but i'll tell you the answer that you probably think we're both going to give um of course, the sh- the whole Schubert thing was not my idea. It was Manny Axe's idea. Uh, Emmanuel Axe was doing a series with the Chamber Music Society, Lincoln Center, um, and he did a Schubert-themed concert that had John Harbison's um, November 1828 piece that imagines Schubert crossing into heaven and hearing modern music and mm-hmm. sort of trying it out for himself. <laughs> uh, and then... Quite a bit of actual Schubert, and he wanted to, He commissioned a piece to go in that program for himself and his wife for forehands. And so I had to get Schubert into the act somehow. Right. So I looked at all the forehand music, and I eventually found some fragments in this uh, um, famous duo in A major, grand duo in A major, that, um, that I thought I could manipulate in my own world you know Mm -hmm. Um, firstly secondly I've been interested in the kind of dreamy surrealist relationship with older music before Mm -hmm. I was commissioned to write a piece about Viennese music way back in the 80s that became dream waltzes and it is a kind of dreamy relationship with the past I don't think you can actually go back but you can dream about going back right um, and so that that trope has come up for me several times and Dream waltzes is in a piece of Henry Purcell uh, uh, based on Henry Purcell called Funeral Music for Queen Mary and a few others. So um, my way of carrying out an assignment about older music is to think of it as a dream opportunity.
0: Mm-hmm. Didn't Schubert often uh, write about dreams and his uh, choose dream sort of subjects in his music. Uh, I know, for example, in like the Earl King, you know, he has a very dreamy and he yeah. tends to like write the dreamy stuff in a very major, major mode. And then when in reality intrudes again, he kind of throws minor back. You know, I haven't thought
1: about that. In in Krennic, that's correct. It happens I mean, in, the, in other songs because too. Because the, the fantasy in Earl is that the, that, the, that the Earl King is... is is offering you something good sweet right yeah Turn doesn't turn out well <laughs> uh <laughs>
0: yeah the bargain is not so good yeah 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 i think uh my, my brother but that whole major the
1: whole major minor thing in schubert which um is one of the subjects that i've imported into my piece yeah. obviously um is is a very poignant part of his language
0: the, he almost splits the third in in, in a way in, his, in the way that he goes about. If you go look at it like Shinkarian yeah. <laughs> style, let's don't. <laughs> <laughs> no problem. Um, and also, pictures makes it, uh, oh, oh, its way into the piece a bit.
1: You know, I don't know why. Um, <laughs> it it it's a purely musical relationship. Uh, you, you you get to this place where there's an octave tremolo and and it. It's the it's the exact moment in pictures where that thing would have happened, and it, I just couldn't prevent it from happening. <laughs> but I have no rational explanation uh-huh. for why it it why Mussorgsky strolls by in this <laughs> in this Schubert dream, you know, except that you know he's hey, pro- guys. probably drunk and lost,
0: <laughs> just like real life. Yeah. Yeah, uh, Zach also wanted me to add that they missed the hell out of you uh, up at Cornell. Uh, so I miss I them, yeah. To, I'll to
1: be home you. tomorrow.
0: <laughs> throw that at you. Um, you have an interesting part of your career, which is uh, the longest composer in residence relationship with certainly an American orchestra, which is the Los Angeles Philharmonic. That was from, I think, 88 to
1: 2009. Yeah, right? 80, uh, 21 years. No one has checked on this by the way. There may have been a resident composer in Pocatello, Idaho for forty years. <laughs> Nobody actually checked on this. Well it's like, you but, know, you gotta
0: call the winner of like, you right. know, of the of MLB the world champions. They don't play the Japanese league. Yeah. You gotta, you no,
1: know. I was in LA for a long time. I went there on a two year contract and extended and extended and then Essepeca Salon arrived fairly soon after I did and we we made a relationship that we couldn't somehow break up.
0: I'm interested so in So I
1: finally left when he did.
0: I see. That that makes sense. Yeah. I but yeah, you you still have a good relationship with that orchestra, clearly with Dudamel and
1: I do, I um, do, I do.
0: They, they but your... it,
1: it was it was healthy for the, for us all to move on, you know. They have a another composer in a similar role there now, John Adams, who's doing things that I wouldn't have done. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is this is all necessary. Right. Um, and... How do
0: you maintain such a long relationship? Is it a lot of individual relationships that coalesce or just...
1: I became part of the family there, I think. I don't mean so much with the orchestra, although, of course, m- many of the orchestra members became my friends. How many pieces did you I write? I wrote them about six or seven pieces over the years. But I i, I got to know the audience and they got to know me. Mm-hmm. And that was really very rewarding, that we were, we were truly in this together as listeners.
0: Yeah, that's an um, unusual relationship, especially for... a Modern composers, and they
1: now. have a they have a very dedicated new music audience in Los Angeles, mm-hmm. um, not just for symphony concerts, but for for other kinds of things. And I know most of them by name. You know, uh, uh, the same thing can happen in New York. You know, the audience for new music in New York, uh, there are different audiences, right? But let's say the the Manhattan audience for classical contemporary music, yes. We know who these guys are, basically, right?
0: You right? can definitely know them by name. And
1: and it, and, uh, and you run into each other all the time, and you talk about things, and it's a very rewarding kind of sense of community.
0: Right. Um, did you... Let me ask you, as a clarinetist, I'm always envious of, uh, say, a pianist for having a wealth of colors and, and stuff at their hands. Here you have, basically, an orchestra as your instrument <laughs> to write for... Uh, did that feel freeing or is that somehow also restrictive in a way
1: no it's it's the best i mean that i'm i'm the most at home with the orchestra and that's been true almost my whole life Do i you was you
0: think that's from just listening to those orchestra recordings early on or yeah and
1: being inside of it too i mean that like, we can't be
0: more in the middle than being a violist that's right
1: <laughs> but like you i spent my whole life in the orchestra up to a certain point and um that's that's my home repertory. I I played a lot of chamber music also when I was a kid, and I, I love writing chamber music, and I sang in choirs, and I love writing choral and vocal music. But the orchestras where I would spend all my time if somebody would pay me for it.
0: <laughs> you would spend you would compose one hundred percent for orchestra. Pretty much. Yeah. Ever yeah. consider writing for film or anything like that? Or I would I would love to have tried it. it oh,
1: nice. <laughs> there there that they are now. The yeah. <laughs>
0: That's the beauty of future editing. It's, I'm recording this to.
1: Uh, if it's Stanley Kubrick, that's kind of creepy. So, so <laughs> <laughs>
0: maybe he's out there on the stream listening as. Uh, he as, tends as, to
1: use leggity recordings anyway. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Do you, um, So I would you love can... to
1: have tried film music. It didn't come up, and you know nowadays. Uh, I mean, one of my colleagues at, at Juilliard, John Corleano, did three films, but the, and and Osvaldo Golijov does both concert music and film music. But the days when you could cross over that line easily are in the past. Very few people make that transition anymore. I think because film music has become so technically specialized, you actually have to know that job. Right. You can't just be a composer and walk in, you know, with your pencil. Yeah. Yeah,
0: I um, can't. Oh, it, old school with your score under your arm. Things yeah. things
1: are different these days.
0: No doubt. In fact, I think a lot of
1: there is one famous film composer who still writes his scores in pencil. It's John Williams.
0: Really, and he writes a, he
1: writes a short score, of about eight or ten staves. He has a system. Mm-hmm. He has his own paper, and then he hands that off to the orchestrator. But essentially, it's done. All the orchestration is essentially encoded already. Right. And he's he's
0: written it in pencil. That's unbelievable. I don't
1: know anybody else who now doesn't do it, you know, using sampling and... Well, even
0: you know, like, I think there's a guy, Hans Zimmer has a whole team. He basically has yeah. ghost composers for him.
1: Hans Zimmer and and, um, and James Newton Howard, who are partners, uh, they have a different method, but uh, James actually writes it all himself, I think, but, but they, you know, they, they have a, a team of technicians... And the most advanced orchestral sample library in the world. I know? see.
0: Oh, uh, Yeah, they they're going to put orchestras out of business so hard. My favorite, actually, modern. Well, you've
1: got a you've got a director or a producer who says, I, "I'd like to hear the main title tomorrow," and he means for orchestra. He doesn't mean you right. plunking it plunking it out on the piano. You know.
0: Well, and now the technology is getting pretty. F- so it used to be that you could tell what the when the synthesized strings were. Now you have to like i'm not sure all the time when i'm hearing real strings and when i'm not no it's
1: pretty advanced
0: and films have gone into asking a lot of i think rock musicians uh the lead guitarist for radiohead johnny greenwood wrote writes the music for pt anderson's movies which i think are amazing soundtracks uses a lot of ligety in that too that's sort of how i got to um yeah uh got to that um Actually, we're closing in on 5 o'clock, which is your okay. your deadline. So uh, I just wanted to get you on a little bit of the record here and, and just start to hear your thoughts. And actually, I have a, a lot more sort of detailed questions that maybe uh, at some point you can take me up on the scotch. And, sure. Uh, and we'll <laughs> sit down and talk about some uh, process things at length. Because, sure, uh, sure. You've been a great guest. Pleasure. I appreciate all that. Yeah, thank that you, cool. Chris. Thanks very much.